The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. The scripture for today is Psalm 100. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Um, This morning we will be in Psalm 100 together, and you might be familiar with our psalm, Psalm 100. It's very famous. Um, A lot of Christians know it. It's been used throughout the history of the church in worship and liturgy and a lot of different settings um, for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's also known by its Latin title, which you probably don't care about, but some of you do, um, the Jubilate. And if there are any closet Anglicans in here, I know you're around... I know you are. You'll know that in the Book of Common Prayer, this is included as a part of daily morning prayer. So there's a lot that could be said about this psalm this morning, but I want us to focus on kind of the central emotion or feeling that this psalm expresses or conveys to us. So if I asked you, what's kind of the dominant or central emotion that this psalm conveys or expresses? What, What would you say that it is? Give me an answer. Joy? Yes. Good job, Bill. Not surprised that you were the one who uh, picked that out. (laughs) Joyful man. Um, Yes, it's joy. If you just look down at verses 1 and 2, make a joyful noise to to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Joy is kind of the central emotion or feeling that this psalm conveys to us. And I know that for myself, and probably for many of you, it's very easy for us to respond to the actions, right? The doing, the coming, the being here at church, the the going and doing, all of the actions that make up our lives as Christians. I'm I'm usually good at doing those actions, but I'm not always good at doing those things with joy or with gladness, or with thanksgiving, or with praise. A lot of Sunday mornings, my my worship doesn't feel like joyful worship or glad worship, right? So if I asked you this morning, what's kind of the emotion or the feeling that you feel at most home with, or that's most comfortable to you in your life and in your worship, what would you say that that is? What's, What's that emotion that kind of underrides every single other emotion that you experience. A lot of times for me, I'll be honest with you, shame is something that I feel a lot. Some days I'll wake up feeling shame and not really knowing why. It's just there, right? And there are certainly other emotions like that that I think we all experience as as Christians, right? What's that emotion for you? For my wife, Emma, (laughs) I said this before to her, so I can say it here. Anger is something that she really feels at ease with. 
especially with me. <laughs> she's very, she, she feels at ease with the emotion of anger. That doesn't come easily to me, but it comes easily to her. And, and I'm wondering, what's the emotion that comes easily to you? What's that emotion that you kind of experience most often? And I think if we're honest as a church, and if I'm honest with you, a lot of times those emotions, those feelings are feelings of shame, depression, sadness, despair, right? Not hope not joy. So why, why is it, our question this morning is, why is it that so often our lives are rejoicing, yet always sorrowful, but not sorrowful, but always rejoicing? When the world looks at our life as a church, as believers, can it really say, can the world really say of you, non-Christians, can they really say, happy is the people whose God is the Lord? Is that what they think of when they think of us? Happy is the people whose God is the Lord. Now, of course, we have different temperaments, right? Emotions are really confusing things sometimes. They're not easy to identify. They're hard. They're hard things to experience. And some of us experience emotions easily, and for others it's difficult, right? And for a lot of us, some people are even kind of biologically wired a certain way to experience certain emotions more strongly and more seriously. And to add to the mix, sin is a part of this, right? Sin is always trying to manipulate our emotions, twist our emotions, so that it might be sinful. I think of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, he goes after the lust of the heart, where he goes after anger, right? He goes after these emotions. But, as Christians, if we really believe that we are being transformed not just in our minds, right? I think we tend to believe that, that we're just being transformed in our minds. We're just being trained to think better about God. That's not true. As Christians, we believe that, yes, the mind is important, but our affections, our emotions are also being changed by the Spirit. And that's hard for me in my own life because I'm a very rational person. I like to think through things. And emotions are kind of hard for me to experience sometimes. But when we read Scripture, throughout Scripture, we see that the people of God are full of different emotions. Our lives are supposed to be characterized by deep emotions, by penetrating emotions, right? The Bible does not imagine our lives as, as Christians as one of like stoic, apathy, coldness, cold-heartedness, no, it, it imagines a life of emotions, of deep emotions. And if, if you don't believe me, just read the Gospels. Look at Jesus. He experiences very deep, deep emotions. Anger at the Pharisees. Sadness. Think about Lazarus. Sadness. Jesus weeps. We as a people are to experience deep, deep emotions. And being in seminary doesn't help this, right? Because most of seminary is them just attacking your mind with information. At Beeson, that's what I experience a lot. And it takes a while for my heart and my affections to kind of catch up with that knowledge, right? There's so much information, there's so much knowledge, there's so much stuff being taught to me that it takes a while for my heart, my affections, my emotions to kind of catch up. So this morning, we're going to focus on an emotion, a feeling. But consider some, some psalms with me before we do that. Psalm 6, 6 through 7. I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. My eye wastes away because of grief or 
Consider Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or maybe Psalm 42. As a deer plant pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for the living God. Consider some of the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy are who? The poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn or consider some of the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy. What I'm, what I'm trying to show you is that our lives as Christians are to be characterized by different emotional experiences. And those things are not weak. They don't make us less than. Those make us fully human, actually, fully Christians when we experience these types of emotions. And so there, there are certain emotions and affections that we're intended to experience as Christians. Jonathan Edwards, he calls these things religious affections. You might be familiar with that phrase. He wrote a really famous book called Religious Affections. And, and he says this, Jonathan Edwards is a very logical person, and he says this about our desires and our emotions and our affections as Christians. He says this, true religion consists so much in the affections that there can be no true religion without them. True religion consists so much in the affection that there can be no true religion without them. He who has no religious affection is in a state of spiritual death and is wholly destitute of the powerful, quickening, saving influences of the Spirit of God upon his heart. He goes on to say, if the great things of religion are rightly understood, they will affect the heart. So again, as Christians, we're to be a people, yes, who seek the trans- transformation of our, our minds, but also the transformation of our emotions and our affections. This morning, we're going to focus on joy. I think joy is to be one of the dominant experiences of our lives as Christians, one of the dominant feelings, one of the dominant kind of emotions of our lives as Christians. There's one that I could point out that should be kind of the dominant overarching emotion of our lives as believers. It would be joy. Joy, this deep and penetrating satisfaction in God, right? There's this desire and nostalgia that comes with joy, and and it's so satisfying, but there's still something that's not quenched when you have it, right? You're still left wanting more. That's joy. And our psalm this morning, again, exudes, it it expresses joy, lots of joy. Verses 1 and 2, again, make a joyful noise. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts. Praise, joy. I think joy throughout Scripture is to be the emotion, the kind of underwriting emotion that we are to experience as, as believers. Joy. And I understand that thinking about joy as an emotion seems kind of weird. I understand that. I'm still kind of working through this in my own mind, and maybe you can talk about this at lunch. Because I do think that joy, there is an emotional element to it, right? There's a feeling to joy. Well, I don't know what else you would call it. It's different, obviously, than a lot of the feelings and emotions we experience because joy doesn't change, right, based upon circumstances and and other external things. Joy is lasting. It doesn't change. But there's still an emotion, a feeling of happiness that joy brings. And so I think think it is, in some way, an emotion. I don't think it's just an emotion, 
but I think it is kind of an emotion. So what's the disconnect for us? Why, why is it that our lives um, don't often express the joy that we see in Psalm 100 and throughout the pages of Scripture? Why is that the case? And how can we kind of reorient our lives to where joy is that kind of dominant hum of our lives as believers and of our worship as believers? You see, for, for many of us, I think these first few verses that talk so much about joy, they seem kind of naive, right? Kind of optimistic. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Do you know how many reasons I have why that I should not do that right now? <laughs> when I look out into the world, when I look out into my life, there's so many things telling me that this should not be the case, that I have no reason to have joy in God. And then when we hear Paul say things like, rejoice, always. <laughs> Again, I say rejoice. We're like, really, Paul? Are you serious? Why is it hard for us? Why is it hard for me to believe that joy can be this kind of dominant feeling and emotion of our lives? I think there's probably a lot of reasons, but let me, let me give you just two. Reason number one, why I think it's kind of hard for us sometimes to believe that this type of joy is offered to us and can be accessed in our daily lives as believers. Reason number one, Jonathan and Brad often talk about social media, right? In the news, and all of these external influences that are shaping and, and transforming us as Christians. And what if social media, the news, these other outlets, the world, let's call it the world, what if these things are not just shaping our minds, the way that we think, but the way that we feel, our, our emotions, right? So often when we think about, you know, those things discipling us, we think of, oh yeah, they're feeding me information. But what if they're also feeding your heart, your desires, your affections, your loves? What if what if the reason why so often we don't experience joy in our lives as Christians is because we're being discipled by a culture and a world that is essentially joyless, that doesn't know the joy of the gospel, the joy of the resurrection, right? So when we are being discipled by these things, it doesn't seem surprising that our lives can sometimes not have this sense of joy because we let the world kind of define what is possible for us, right, as Christians, we let the world and not Scripture define what is normal emotionally for us, right? And so when we see that there's no joy in the world, we think, oh, there can be no joy in my life. But that's just not true according to Scripture. Who are our emotions being discipled by? A second reason why I think that joy is sometimes difficult for us to experience as Christians is that, this might sound weird, I don't think we disciple ourselves enough. Now, that might be a weird concept. I don't think we disciple ourselves enough. I don't think we preach to ourselves enough. You guys might be familiar with Martin Lloyd-Jones, that name. He was one of the greatest kind of evangelical preachers in the 20th century in Britain. And he wrote a book called Spiritual Depression. And he says this in kind of the intro to his book. He says, Christians so often have the appearance of unhappiness and lack of freedom and absence of joy and he says, there's no question that this is the main reason why large numbers of people are leaving Christianity. <laughs> because we say to worship this God who is full of joy and grace and love, but we so often seem so sad and upset and like we don't believe that. And he goes on to say, he uses Psalm 42 kind of as his test case. And he says, look at the psalmist in Psalm 42. What does he do? Well, first he realizes that his emotions, his experience is not where he wants them to be. 
You might be familiar. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks himself. himself. He asks his inner person, why? what's going on? What's the disconnect here? Why are you not experiencing this happiness, this joy? Why are you downcast? What's going on? Why are you at turmoil within me? And then what does he do? He doesn't just let that situation define him. His emotions and that immediate experience define him. What does he do? He, he preaches to himself. He says, hope in God. <laughs> he tells himself, hope in God, right? I will yet praise him. And Lloyd-Jones says that the reason why a lot of times Christians are unhappy is because we don't do enough talking to ourselves. We let ourselves talk to our, us too much. Now, that's kind of weird to think about. Think about it like this. When you wake up in the morning, there's so much that's already in your mind, right? You just wake up and you're just bombarded with thoughts, different expectations for the day, and you're probably already experiencing emotion. Maybe like you have something going on that you're worried about and you're thinking about that thing, that meeting or whatever it might be in the day, and you experience dread. You're already waking up experiencing anxiety and dread about the day. Or maybe it's something from yesterday. Maybe you remember something that you said or did yesterday that hurt somebody, and you're already feeling sadness because of that in the morning. What do you do when you experience that? What are we to do when we experience those thoughts and those emotions? We're to preach to them. We're to preach to them. We're to say, hope in God. These are the reasons why he has been good to you. These are the reasons why he'll get you through the day. Even just this morning when I woke up, <laughs> my flesh, the self inside of me was saying, John, you, you're not enough to do this today. You can't preach this morning. Are you kidding me? You think you can go up there and preach to all these people? Right? And if I would have bought into that lie, that would have crippled me. What do I do? I, I preached to it. I said, no, by the Spirit, the Lord has given me power, and I can preach. He's called me to do this. I preach to myself. So I think as Christians, one way that we can fight for joy in our lives is by preaching more to ourselves. And the rest of this morning, we're going to look at some reasons why we, we can have joy, some, re- some ammunition, if you will, that we can use to preach to ourselves when ourselves, our inner person, our flesh is telling us, you should not have joy in God. You should not believe who you are in Christ. These are all the reasons why that you are not enough, you are not loved, and you are not satisfied. We're going to look at this morning, through the Psalm 100, some reasons why that's not true, and some reasons that we can use to, to preach to ourselves, to get ourselves, our hearts and our affections kind of reoriented towards, towards God. And I think that Psalm 100 shows us that when we remember that the Lord is God, when he is our maker, that he is our savior, then we can live. We're invited to live a life of joy when we remember that he is God, our maker, and our savior. Look at verse 3 with me. Psalmist commands us, know that the Lord, he is God. Know that the Lord, he is God. In order for our existence, our lives, and our worship as Christians to be characterized and marked by joy and praise, we must remember, we must preach to ourselves, we must remind ourselves that the Lord is God. That should give you joy, right? There's a reality beyond just your self-centered life. It's God. God is before you. He's above you. He's after you. God is there, and he defines your reality. You don't have to define your own existence or reality. You don't have to wake up every morning with, with anxiety about who you're going to please today or, or who you're going to be today. The Lord has already decided that for you. 
He has already given you meaning and existence. He is God. He determines right from wrong. He determines good from evil. We are not the judge, right? We are not the judge. He is the judge. And that is good news because we don't have to face the anxiety and the burden of having to be Lord of our own lives and of trying to be Lord of other people's lives. That is good news. We are not God. We are not the Lord. The Lord is the one calling the shots. He writes every wrong. He determines good from evil. He brings order out of chaos. We need to remind ourselves this morning the simple truth. The Lord is God. He is in control of all things, every detail of your life. He knows where you're at. He reigns, right? From him and through him and to him are all things. He orders all things. He justifies. He, he makes everything right. He puts everything in, in order. That's the good news of the fact that the Lord is God and that he is judge. Karl Barth writes this in a famous passage of his church dogmatics, and you might be familiar with, with this. Um, he says this, and this is just a really profound thought. He says, the fact that Jesus Christ judges in our place means an immeasurable liberation and hope. The loss which we always bewail and which we seem to suffer means in reality that a heavy and indeed oppressive burden is lifted from us when Jesus Christ becomes our Lord. It's a nuisance, an intolerable nuisance to have to be the man who gives the sentence. It's a constraint always to have to be convincing ourselves that we are innocent, that we're right. It's no longer necessary because Jesus is Lord that I should pronounce myself free and righteous. We don't have to do that anymore. He says, it's no longer necessary that even if only in my heart, I need to pronounce others guilty. He says, those things won't help me. I am not the judge. Jesus Christ is the judge. The matter is taken out of my hands and that means liberation. A great anxiety is lifted, the greatest of all. We have reason to rejoice this morning because we don't have to be the judge. We don't have to be the Lord. We don't have to be the center of our lives. There's a God above us, the triune God, who is ordering our lives, He's protecting us, he's sustaining us, and he's preserving us. We must remember that the Lord is God. That's reason number one. Reason number two why that we can kind of use to preach to ourselves when we are lacking joy and we want to get to a place where we have joy. It's simple. The Lord is our maker. Look again at verse 3. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. In order for our lives as Christians and our worship as Christians to be characterized and marked by joy, we must remember that the Lord is our maker. So the world we live in has a very narcissistic tendency to tell us that we always need to be defining ourselves. Who, who did you vote for? What team do you root for? What's your sexual identity supposed to be? Did you get vaccinated? Did you not get vaccinated? There's so many labels that we're being pressured and really forced to kind of define ourselves by and to give ourselves identity by. And if we're not careful, we can be led to believe that we are our own makers, that we identify our, by identifying ourselves. We can determine who we are. 
I can just check all these different boxes, and that's, that's who I am. That's the world we live in. There's a famous quote by a man named John Paul Sartre, and he writes this, and I think this captures kind of the mood of the world and the sense of the world without God as maker. This is what he says. Man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he's responsible for everything he does. It's up to you to give life a meaning. Man can will nothing unless he has first understood that he must count on no one but himself, that he is alone, abandoned on earth, in the midst of his infinite responsibilities. Without help, with no other aim than the one he sets himself, with no other destiny than the one he forges for himself on the earth. If we buy into these words, and if we buy into the words of the culture that we have to be our own makers, our own creators, our own fashioners, we will only experience anxiety and despair because we were not meant to do that, right? God has given us an identity. He has created us for himself. He has called us son and daughter. He is our maker. He has made us in his image. And so we, we don't have to suffer the impossible burden and weight of having to define ourselves, to give ourselves meaning by what we do and what we wear and all the different preferences and all the different labels that we have to define ourselves by. We don't have to feel pressured that those things are truly us because God has given us an identity that's before all of those things. He has created you uniquely and individually with all of your gifts, with all of your talents. God has created you. You don't have to, you're, it's not up to you to define who you are. <laughs> God has given that to you, and that is good news. That is gospel good news. Keep in mind the quote I just read you, and you know these words from Psalm 139, right? The psalmist says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Doesn't that sound good news, like good news in light of what the culture tells us? That we have to define ourselves. We have to determine every day. Every day we have to give our lives meaning and significance. You don't have to do that. That's the good news that God is your maker right? You don't have to do that anymore. He has planned your days. He has numbered them. He has counted them, and he knows them. He has made you. It's not only made us, but he preserves us, right? He sustains us. It's not like God just, you know, created, thought about all of our days and said, okay, go do it. You got it. Hands off. It's all on you now, right? No, he's active in our lives more intimately, I think, than I think we realize. More intimately than I think I realize, you probably know the passage in Matthew 6 where Jesus is asking his disciples, why are you anxious about all of these things? About clothing, about food, about your sustenance. Why? Why are you so anxious? He says, the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows you need them all. God knows your needs. He knows where you're at. He knows your situation, and, and he cares for you. He cares for your situation. He's there, and he's, he's guiding your life day by day, moment by moment, and, and he's here with us right now. God does not just create everything and then just let his hands go like a clock. 
No, he's still active in your life every day, preserving you and sustaining you. Jonathan Edwards, again, he says that, you know, creation was created out of nothing, something that we believe as Christians. He says God does that essentially to you every day. He wills to create you out of nothing. He loves you so much that he wills every day that you would exist, every second that you would exist, every moment that you would exist. See, if God were to just let go of the reins, we would just be gone, right? He is preserving you and sustaining you. Okay, God has not only made us, he's made us for himself. And if you again again look at verse 3, it says, we are his, right? We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So God has not just made us, he's made us for himself, probably know the famous quote, our hearts are restless, right, until they find rest in him. Why is that? Because he has wired us. He has made us for joy in him, for fellowship in him. He hasn't just made us. He has made us for him, to be his son, to be his daughter. We are his, and he is our joy, and our hearts can only find satisfaction when we have communion with him and a relationship with him. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. He has entered into a relationship with us, a special relationship with us as his church. And he has promised to be our God and that we would be his people. He has marked us off. In Deuteronomy 7, it's a really great passage. Moses is telling Israel why God chose them to be his people. And he says, it's not because you're more than number. It's not because you're greater than all of these nations. He says he loves you, and he says, why? Because he loved you. <laughs> he just loves you, and that's it. We don't need to think any deeper than that. God loves us as his people. He has chosen us to be his people just because that's who he is. He loves us. You don't have to try to qualify that by saying, I did X, Y, and Z to earn this, reserve this, or I did X, Y, and Z to not deserve this. God just loves you. That's all. And because he loves us, we're his, his sheep. And Jesus is our good shepherd. We know that from John 10. He has laid down his life for us, and he preserves us, and he cares for us. So in order for our Christian lives, in order for our worship to be characterized and marked by joy, we need to remember that God is our maker. We need to preach to ourselves day by day that God has made me who I am, and we can rejoice in that. Verse 5, The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And this is reason three. The reason that we can rejoice in God, not just because he's God, not just because he's our maker, but because he's our savior. He's our deliverer, right? And so for our lives to be marked by joy, we need to preach to ourselves that God is our deliverer. Okay, how do we know that the Lord is good? How do we know that his love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations? Well, in the Old Testament, the Israelites would look back at what? The Exodus, the Exodus experience. And they would say, look, God has covenanted with us as his people. He has saved us. We did nothing to deserve that, right? He has pledged himself to us. And in Exodus 34, shortly after the Exodus event, God reveals his character to his people. He says, I'm a Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. I've just shown you that. I've just saved you. I am your Savior. So rejoice in me. In the New Testament, we obviously know that 
Jesus Christ. He has done the new exodus, right? He has delivered us from sin, death, and the devil. And he shows that God is good not just to his people Israel, but to everybody, to all humanity, and to his special people, the church. God is gracious. He's loving. He's good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generation. In Christ, God has saved us from the depths of our sin, right? And rebellion. You have been made right with God. God has died for you, and you have been made right for him. There's no condemnation for you. There's nothing that can separate you from the love of Christ. There's no good thing, good enough that you can do to earn his favor, and there's no bad thing, bad enough that you can do to to not earn his favor. Your sins are no longer yours. You're free. You're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And in Christ, God has saved us from death. Your life is no longer being oriented towards death, but to eternal life. Death has died, and we have victory over death with Christ. And in Christ, God has saved us from the devil. Like I said earlier, the world has no, really has no control over our lives. We need to remember that as believers, that Christ has overcome the devil and the world, which is under the devil's control, right? Nothing shall separate us from his love. Nothing in this world will. The person and the work of Jesus Christ and our salvation shows us that he is, the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. We see that most clearly in the death of Jesus Christ. That was the third and final reason, right? So we've seen this morning that joy ought to characterize our lives as believers. We've seen that from, from Scripture. But it's hard, right? It's not easy. It's easier said, it's easier for me to speak about this for 40 minutes than for us to actually live this in our lives. I'm saying that to myself, right? We've seen that our hearts have cause to rejoice because God is our Lord, He's our Maker, and He's our Savior. But let's consider just one more aspect before we conclude. Psalm 100 begins with what? Make a joyful noise to Lord all the earth, right? Right now, as we have our lives, not all the earth is making a joyful noise to God. As believers in Jesus, by the way we live, when we live with joyous lives, that attracts people to the gospel. They say there must be something to that Christian thing. There must be something to that. You have all these things going on. Some things look horrible, and yet you have joy. How is that? What is that? I I want some of that, right? When we have joy, when our circumstances are awful, when a loved one is going through a difficulty, when a family member is suffering from an illness, and we can still have joy, that's attractive to the world. There's something to that that the world sees and longs for. And by living that way, by having joy, no matter what happens, right, we invite the nations, we invite all the earth to rejoice in God. It's difficult to find joy in this world. And I understand that for more people than not, probably, it's hard for us to have joy in this life. And we can't just manufacture joy. I can't just wake up and will to have joy, right? It is a fruit of the Spirit, something that's given by the Spirit of God. Let, let me encourage us this morning. I focus on kind of the emotion of joy from this psalm, but this psalm has a lot of action, right? Make a, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Serve. Come into his presence with singing. 
Know that the Lord, he is God. Enter his gates. Give thanks to him. There's a lot of action verbs, right? So if you're not at this place where you're experiencing joy in the Lord, at least let's do these actions. Let's, let's gather together. And even if it's so hard for us to believe it sometimes, let's sing to the Lord. Let's try to have joy in the Lord. And, and that's why we need each other, right? We need to come here week after week so we can sing to each other. Have joy in the Lord. You have reason to have joy in the Lord, to sing that and to hear that from pulpit as well. We need each other to have joy in this fight for joy in the world, right? We, we can't do it on our own. And I know that it's hard for a lot of people. But let's continue to come. Let's continue to serve. And let's pray like Jesus tells us to. Pray that our joy may be full in the midst of those things. Even when it's hard, the fight is hard. And let's look to Jesus, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We remember that the Lord is God. He's our maker and our Savior. We may, we're invited to live a life of joy and praise. So in conclusion, and this is from Romans 15, this is Paul. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Spirit you may abound in hope. Amen.